This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of July 27, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 236 of Defender Radio. For over 120 years, the gray wolf had been absent from the state of California. Extermination programs, recreational hunting, trapping for fur, and habitat loss drove the populations down and out until they were extirpated. That is, until OR7. The gray wolf, known internationally by his scientific tag designation, ventured over 1,500 kilometers from his pack in Rogue River, Oregon, to the western part of the state and into California, making worldwide headlines and exciting wildlife lovers in America. In the ensuing years since his iconic crossing of the state line, OR7, also known by many as Journey, has sired two litters of pups in Oregon and continues to amaze researchers and advocates. Despite this success and recognition, however, OR7's life is not easy and his safety is not guaranteed. Defender Radio was joined by Amarok Wise of the Center for Biological Diversity to discuss the world's fascination with this wolf, what he represents to advocates, and why policies are being debated that could see him murdered. Let, let's talk a bit about OR7. So this is something um, uh, those of us who hang around and read about wildlife all day uh, are, are used to seeing pop up in our news engines. But I think there's a lot of people who may not know the story behind OR-7 and the, uh, the relevance of this animal. Could you give a bit of background on who this, uh, this wolf is? Yeah, absolutely. OR7 is probably the world's most famous wolf at this point. He grew up being a simple wolf raised by his family in Oregon. He comes from the Imnaha pack, but even his pack history isn't that simple. He, he actually comes from a, a, a um, parentage that were also travelers, like he ended up being. His parents are two different wolves who came on their own from Idaho. Uh, swam the Snake River, climbed the 10,000-foot peaks of Hell's Canyon to get to where they ended up in eastern Oregon, met up with each other. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, wolves go on major adventures, and we don't really know about it unless they have radio collars on. Um, they met up with each other in 2008, had their first litter that year, had their second litter in 2009, and that was the litter that Wolf OR7 was born into. And he's called OR7 because he is the seventh wolf to have been captured and radio colored by biologists in Oregon. He uh, later got a, a more um, pleasant sounding, uh, more humanized name maybe, or, or more, um, um, I don't want to say humanized, something that actually ended up being very representative of who he is in a naming contest he would later name Journey. And uh, that's exactly what he did. So. When wolves get to be about two to three years of age, they leave their family pack. That's quite normal for a wolf. Not all wolves do. Some stick around for a few more years. But generally, they're like teenagers. They're out looking for mates and territory of their own. And so in September of 2011, when he was two and a half years old, Wolf OR7, or Jury, 
uh, set off from his family pack in northeastern Oregon and began to make his way across the state. And because he had this radio collar on, biologists were able to track through the satellite signal from his radio collar where he was going. He has a collar that has both GPS functioning on it for satellite detection and VHF collars. If you've ever seen biologists out in the field in those little movies where they're holding up something that looks like a TV antenna, they can pick up signal on a VHF collar. So his collar was fitted with both of those. And as he traveled across Oregon, he began to travel farther and farther and farther. And he made this diagonal journey across the state from northeastern Oregon over to the Cascade Range area, spent a fair amount of time near Crater Lake National Park, and then began to dip south. And as he got further south, people began to realize that perhaps this wolf was headed and could make it into California which would be a phenomenal occurrence because there hadn't been a confirmed wild wolf in California since the last one was killed in 1924. And in fact, that's exactly what he did. On December 28th of 2011, which also happens to be the anniversary of the Federal Endangered Species Act, this wolf lifted a paw on the Oregon side of the border and set it back down in California and kept on going. And his story made international headlines because people had been following this story in the news as he made his way across. And literally there were news stories in Germany and Australia and in countries in Asia. And um, the whole world was following what he was doing because we could see this journey of a wild animal doing what a wild animal naturally is inclined to do but doing it in a way that made history because he literally became the first wild wolf to enter California in 87 years. So um, he stayed in California for uh, about, let's see, a year and a half, 15 months, went back into Oregon, uh, came back into California a couple more times in 2013, came back into California a couple more times in 2014, and then in the spring of 2014, he found a mate, a female wolf, who, like him, had traveled from northeastern Oregon from a different family pack. And the two of them met up and had a litter of pups last spring. And just this year, actually just this week, it was announced that it's been confirmed that they had their second litter of pups. And this family pack of wolves is living in southwestern Oregon in the Rogue Siskiyou National Forest. So they've been called the Rogue Pack. And why is it significant now? And again, as we've we both now stated, this is potentially one of the most famous wolves in the world. But his siring of a second litter made international headlines uh, uh, this week. Why is it of such interest and importance uh, that we follow his love life? I think that there are probably four chief reasons we can look at what this wolf has done and what his story has been about and say there are four really significant things that, that we can recognize from this. The first one is habitat. The fact that OR7 has had a second litter demonstrates that Western Oregon does have suitable habitat for wolves. And now scientific studies that have used computer modeling 
identify good wolf habitat. Those studies have reached that conclusion, but now, now OR7 and his family have literally ground truth that for us. So habitat is one thing that's really important uh, recognition here. You know, secondly, it signals the importance of legal protections for wolves. This major milestone was made possible by the fact that there were necessary state and federal protections that have been in place for the last several decades that are now in jeopardy, but those legal protections are what have helped the species begin to return to places that they once called home. The third significance of OR7 having the second litter is, you know, this is really a PAC's way of putting down roots. And, you know, actually, let's be clear here, a PAC is a family. That is what, you know, we've used this term for decades. This is what a wolf family structure is, but it's a family. It's a mom and a dad and pups from the year and pups from last year's litter. And having that first litter and now the second one, this is developing a complex multi-generational layer within the pack. And that's biologically a really excellent sign. The scientists tell us that if left unharmed by humans, Wolf packs biologically tend towards this complexity of, of having those multi-generations in there. Each of these wolves, this is a, it's an age-structured system, and each one of them plays a different role in a pack's health and their well-being and their survival. So being able to develop that complex structure is a positive sign that if they're not placed in harm's way, that pack's going to survive. Those offspring are going to mature, and then those offspring will in a few years time leave the pack and set off to find mates and territory of their own, which leads us to the fourth significance of this, which is what does this mean for more wolves to come to California? Because as close as this pack is to the California border, it's highly likely now that one or more of OR7's pups could find their way into California. They could potentially meet up with a dispersing wolf from another unrelated pack who's also wandered into California and set up a family and territory of their own. So the odds of California getting more visits from more wolves and a wolf family developing there, that's exponentially increased with this news of his new litter. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada. 
But will we be good to them? Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from Amarok Wise of the Center for Biological Diversity to talk OR7 and his incredible journey. One of the things you've mentioned already that I find very interesting is the discussion of the delisting of wolves from the United States Federal uh, Endangered Species. Uh, I, it's not called an act, I don't believe, uh, but the it legislation. Is. is it called an act? Yep, the Endangered Species oh. Act. Yep. There you go. It's very British and colonial of you. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> don't tell any other Americans I said that. Um, so does this story of OR7 show that, yes, we're at a point now where they don't need those protections? Or does it illustrate that these wolves still are at a sensitive point in their recovery system, uh, process? Uh, the second thing you said is what it illustrates. You know, we think about wolves being in particular areas now. And for instance, in the Northern Rockies, there's about 1,700 wolves there now. And that's as a result of a reintroduction program that was done in 95 and 96 when the U.S. government went up to Canada, actually got wolves from Alberta and from, um, oh gosh, there were two different locations, Uh, uh Yep, yep, British Columbia. And they were brought down to Yellowstone in central Idaho in 95 and 96. That population, because the federal protections were in place, had the, the protections they needed to expand their own population in size and, and, and distribution. And in the north western Great Lakes states, there's a population of about 3,000 to 3,500 wolves there now. The time the Endangered Species Act was passed in 1973, there were less than a thousand wolves there. There were probably about 600 wolves left in northern Minnesota. It's the only place in the lower 48 that wolves still existed at that time. Because of the protections, that population was allowed to grow in size and distribution and spread out across a few more states. We have Mexican gray wolves that were reintroduced to the southwestern United States starting in 1998, but there's only a little over 100 wolves there. The wolves that are in Oregon and Washington, there's only about 77 wolves in Oregon and 68 wolves in Washington. No other known wolves yet in California. So in total, this is about 5,500 wolves in the entire lower 48 United States. And while that number sounds like a lot, that's less than 1% of what their original numbers were in this country before we began this campaign of wolf eradication several hundred years ago. Um, not only is it less than 1% of their original numbers, but they're only occupying less than 10% of their original habitat. So wolf recovery is actually in its infancy and federal protections need to remain in place and state protections, if they can be obtained, should also be in place. Because OR7 came into California, our organization and three allies filed an administrative petition with the state of California in 2012 to get the wolf listed under the California Endangered Species Act. It took two years of duking it out with the state, but in 2014, we were successful. 
So if the federal protections are removed in California, the state protections will be there. But in losing federal protections in California and in adjacent states, that really cuts off the protections that these wide-ranging species need to make it from state to state so that they can come back, so that they can recolonize places that are still very suitable for wolves. And that's something I find interesting. Um, I, I know that within uh, your national park system, akin to our, our national parks and provincial parks, there is, if there is going to be hunting or trapping, it is extraordinarily limited. Um, but there's sort of a line drawn in the sand, so to speak, or on the map, where once the animal crosses that line, they're now free game. But a as you just noted, uh, these animals are uh, widespread and they do have great geographic range um, so to me that really underscores the need for that national level as well as state level uh, protection is that something that um, uh, the center for biological diversity is, is looking at is that geographic distribution of wildlife oh yeah absolutely we in 2010 we petitioned the u.s fish and wildlife service to develop a national recovery plan for wolves because the way that they have worked on wolf recovery in this country to date has been piecemeal to identify just a few regions of the country to work on wolf recovery, even though the species is listed nationwide. So for these wide ranging, large top predators like wolves, like grizzly bears, like mountain lions, any of these animals that use immense amounts of terrain from a biological perspective, it makes no sense to just have small postage stamp size recovery types of programs. And we've seen in this country the devastating effect of what happens when federal protections are lifted. In 2011, after multiple years of court battles back and forth in which our organization and others had filed lawsuits challenging the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for delisting wolves there. The courts would then agree with us. They would overturn the delisting, noting very specifically that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had violated the Federal Endangered Species Act, had delisted wolves prematurely. And when that happened after several year period, Congress stepped in and delisted wolves through a, what's called a rider an amendment that was attached to an appropriations bill. And in our Congress, whenever there's an appropriations bill that's going to go through, particularly a Department of Defense appropriations bill, these are considered must-pass bills. And people who have little pet projects know this, and they attach dangerous writers onto those bills. And so when the bill gets passed, the writer gets passed as well. And that is how wolves were delisted in the Northern Rockies here in the lower 48. And as soon as that happened, the states that took over management immediately began to institute very aggressive hunting and trapping seasons on wolves. The same thing happened in the Western Great Lakes states when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service delisted there. Those states also instituted very aggressive hunting and trapping seasons on wolves. And this is unprecedented. You know, there's no other species that has been delisted from the Federal Endangered Species Act and immediately was subject to hunting and trapping. And every year, those states have escalated the numbers that they allow to be hunted and trapped and expanded the areas where they allow them to be hunted and trapped. So this all-out war on wolves 
continues. You know, the fact that in this country we tried to eradicate wolves for so long a period of time, then tried to bring them back. The moment the protections were lifted, it was like we were back in the ancient history times again. And um, these battles will continue to play out in the courts. We are involved in a number of legal challenges. We were actually able to overturn the delisting of wolves in Wyoming. And uh, a court agreed again with our, with our lawsuit on that. And now there's an attempt in Congress to, again, attach a writer to overturn that court ruling. There's actually three writers pending in Congress right now on an appropriations bill. One is to overturn a court ruling that restored protections to wolves in Wyoming. Another is to overturn a court ruling that restored protections to wolves in the Western Great Lakes states. And another is a writer that would strip wolves of protections in Utah, Washington, and Oregon, even though there's not even been any court cases over those. So um, it's, it's a battle that we are very much uh, entrenched in. And um, it's, it's one of those things that you say it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, but we're in it for the long haul because wolves are important. Well, and what I find fascinating, and we, we have um, a sustained wolf hunt now occurring in, in our two western, two southwestern provinces, British Columbia and Alberta, uh, which are as one can imagine, largely based around resource extraction issues. Um, but um, one of the things I find so fascinating about these conversations is the existing science, which shows without a doubt how vital these wolves are to our ecosystems, to our long-term survival as a species on this continent. Yet, politicians and policymakers and special interest groups immediately choose to wipe them out because of fear-mongering, because of quick money. Uh, how has the uh, the Center for Biological Diversity tried to combat that? I'd, I'd say almost PR problem for the wolves. Yeah, you know, we it, our particular organization is made up largely of people who are themselves scientists or lawyers or both. Myself, I'm a biologist and a former lawyer. And as a result of that, we all have had contacts for a long time with and still maintain contacts with the very biologists out in the field who are doing this critical work. Many times these people will come to us and let us know uh, a problem that they see that's going on with an agency action that's um, uh, controverting what the science is showing. Uh, other times we will see what's going on with an agency action and so we will contact various scientists who have written specific papers and say we need to present your paper to this agency or we need you to testify at a hearing would you be willing to do that so for instance just about two weeks ago we had a panel of scientists that testified in front of congress uh, one of the this was to uh, urge congress not to pass these wolf delisting bills one of the scientists who testified was Christina Eisenberg. She's an extremely well-known, highly credentialed scientist who's done a lot of the work on what you were talking about, trophic cascades, the relationship between wolves and elk and the vegetation that elk eat and the whole interaction of what that does for the whole rest of the biodiversity in the ecosystem. So bringing that kind of scientific information to policymakers who are passing legislation is really critical. Uh, we've done the same thing at, at the state level. So for instance, 
in Washington State, uh, we pulled together, uh, we're part of a coalition called the Pacific Wolf Coalition, and we helped pull together a panel of scientists who gave a presentation at the University of Washington. Uh, their presentations are now available on video, and also we're putting together a white paper on that. And what that, what that was, a, was a compilation of what is the research on what is the effect of lethal control on wolves? Does it actually reduce livestock depredations or not? What is the effect of human-caused killing of wolves? Does that affect the pack, the family pack structure? Does that affect the pup survival rate? Does that affect whether or not the population growth rate goes up or goes down? These are all questions that rarely, if ever, get thought about in agency management decisions. At the state level in this country, when an agency goes out to quote unquote manage wolves, which can frequently mean killing wolves, it's often in response to either the livestock industry, who's upset about wolf-caused losses to their livestock, or it's in response to the sports hunting industry, which is upset that they think wolves are competing with them for elk and other wild ungulates that they want to hunt. And unfortunately, those two industries have a very outsized voice in management of predators in this country, and I'm sure it's not true just for this country. Uh, I believe that's exactly what's happening in Canada and British Columbia as well. The situation where you have wolves that are being slaughtered in order to protect caribou who herds when what actually needs to happen is the oil and gas development that's destroying the caribou habitat that needs to bring brought to a halt. Absolutely, and it's it, it is sadly ironic that the very same stories being told by the ranchers and hunters and trappers and uh, so on uh, today in Congress and in our parliamentary committees are the same as those that were told several hundred years ago um, in the early days of both our countries. But um, now you, you noted that you're, you're a lawyer and biologist by training. You, you clearly have a great deal of experience and you look at these issues every day, day in and day out. And as someone who, who also follows wildlife news very closely, it gets very, very uh, it's depressing, really. Um, but OR7, as we said at the beginning, is, is a special wolf for a lot of reasons, politically and uh, on that biological front. But what does OR7, what does his story mean to you personally and to others who are involved in this ongoing struggle? I, I think he's a wolf that came at a moment in time when we needed him. And I think he is a wolf who, through his actions, through his just plain being a wolf, has provided you know, information that the general public didn't know about wolves. Uh, he has helped bust myths about wolves that, because they have been myths, have really provoked unwarranted hatred of the animal. And hell, he's just been inspirational. You know, we look at his story and we learn, first of all, it's never too late to start a family. It's amazing for him to have had his first and his second litters when he was five and six years of age. Most wolves in the wild live, on average, around six years. 
we learn from him that wolves really want nothing to do with humans, contrary to all of these stories that wolves are animals that are going to come after you in the woods. You know, he's traveled 4,000 miles in his quest to find a mate. Uh, and in that whole time, he was rarely seen by anyone. He was seen three times over the course of several years, once by biologists, once by a deer hunter and his daughter, and once by a passing motorist. You know, apart from that, the only way we knew where he was was that collar. So he really didn't want to have anything to do with humans, and that's typical of wolves. Um, we can see from him that wolves regularly have conflicts with livestock. And, you know, this is something that wolf biologists know. It's something that any of us who read agency reports in the science papers know, but the general public doesn't know that because on the very rare occasions that wolves kill or injure livestock, the media turns it into a sensational story as though it happens all the time and it's a terrible crisis. For Wolf 007, every time he hung out in a place for three weeks or more, the biologist would then go in to see what he might have been snooping around at after he left the area. They discovered a deer carcass. Um, you know, one time he had been um, feeding on a bone pile of livestock carcasses from cattle that had died from other causes and the rancher just let it pile up and the agency staff helped the rancher bury that pile and there were seven immediately left the area. And so that tells us that getting rid of attractants is a really easy and common sense thing to do. Um, we, we, we learned from, from watching him that, that lone wolves travel really long distances and, and people are surprised by the distances he covered, but this is what wolves do. And because he traveled those areas, he also helped teach the public that we need these big, connected, wild places for animals like wolves to be wolves. If you look at a map of his travels, and if you overlay that map with a map of public lands and lands identified as suitable for wilderness designation, these are exactly the places that OR7 made his way across, simply by his intuition. So we need to make sure that those places stay protected and wild and undeveloped and connected so that the wildlife has those corridors that they need to survive. And I think um, I, I think another really big lesson from this wolf is that the world loves someone who beats the odds, whether it's a human or it's a wolf, because nobody thought he'd travel that far and that long. And nobody thought that after traveling that far and that long, he'd survive on his own, or that he would actually find a mate, and that they'd have pups, and they'd have a second litter, but everyone was rooting for him. Literally, the whole world was watching. As you said, even with his second litter, that made international headlines. And so I think what he teaches us is that nature, if we allow it to survive, provides us with incredible inspiration, as well as you know what we need for our own health and survival. But just human inspiration. Um, we can draw from that, from, from watching this wolf and learning about him. To learn more about the Center for Biological Diversity and their work to protect wolves in the United States, visit biologicaldiversity.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Amarok for her time, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of this program. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.